Now, uh, for all of the things that Paul commended about his experience at Providence, one of the things he didn't mention is our organization. And uh, that's because sometimes we're not. We, <laughs> in, 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 in listing all the people that are joining today, we forgot to mention somebody, Joshua Doughty, who <laughs> set his fiance up, but not, not him, right? So, sorry, Josh. Do you want to come up? Like I, <laughs> All right. Well, we're glad to have you as well. We love you, and we're thankful for you as well. <laughs> sorry about that. Well, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 22. Kids. Kids know what to do. If you haven't dismissed your kids to children's ministry, you can do that now. We're in Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin reading in verse 31. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times, until you deny that you know me three times. You know, Jesus is obviously both God and man. He's both a human being and he's divine. And in one sense, he's both supernatural and natural, although maybe those terms aren't that helpful sometimes. I bring that up to say that every once in a while, Jesus says something that is clear he was looking into the other world just a moment ago. He had just pulled back the curtain and was looking into the supernatural world. And this is one of those moments in between all the other things that Jesus is doing in this passage. He is actually part of a heavenly tribunal in which Satan is approaching God the Father and demanding the opportunity to sift the disciples like wheat. And Jesus, not surrendering, but embracing his role as an advocate, stands up for Peter in this cosmic tribunal that's happening when? While they're eating? While they're walking down the road? Who knows? It's happening, and Jesus is standing there as an advocate for Peter. It's a strange moment. Jesus does this, and he offers no explanation often when he does it. But he just peels back the curtain, and we see this other world that Jesus is much more aware of than we are. But as strange as that other world can seem, this particular situation isn't anything special. This is just the devil being the devil. The devil does what the devil's going to do. Way back in the Old Testament book of Job, one of the oldest stories we have, the devil stands before God and demands the opportunity to sift Job like wheat, to prove that Job's faith wasn't actually faith, it was just a marriage of convenience, a kind of easy relationship based on an easy life that God had given Job. Thirty or so years after this incident, Peter himself writes in one of his epistles in 1 Peter 5, 8-9, through 9, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So this sense of Satan demanding our souls that he might sift us, that's not something old. It's, it's, I mean, it is something old. It's not something new. 
In fact, the word you in verse 31 is plural, where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you, that he might sift you. That you is plural. The sifting isn't specific to Simon. All the disciples are going to experience this. And what I want you to to understand as we open up this text and think about it is, is that this is a text that describes something you will experience. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you will experience Satan's attempted sifting. So how do we respond to that? If that's in our future, maybe even right now, some of you are being sifted and don't know it. If that's part of the experience of walking with Jesus, how do we respond? You know, very often people's attitude toward the devil is either extremely frightful or extremely foolish. Some people are really, really afraid of the devil, but most people are really, really apathetic towards the devil. To quote the great theologian Kevin Spacey, the greatest trick the devil ever played, right, was to convince the world he didn't exist. Most people aren't overly afraid of Satan. Most people are actually quite apathetic towards Satan. Ephesians 6.12 says, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over this, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what Ephesians 6.12 says. I think for most apathetic Christians, they would just say, we don't wrestle. Right? They would just say, this isn't something we deal with. We're not in a war. We're not worried about an enemy. We don't think about an enemy. And as is so often the case, sometimes we have to choose between extremes, hoping that one of them leads more quickly to the biblical solution. And I would much rather this morning have you afraid of the devil than apathetic toward the devil. Because I feel like we could just turn the afraid volume down a little bit and wind up at alert, which is exactly where you need to be. And it's quite hard to rouse someone who's apathetic. The truth is, is that many of us are apathetic because there's a biblical truism, which is true, that has had a false effect on us. And that's going to be kind of a subplot in this message. Some biblical truisms that are true but have a false effect in deceiving us. And what I'm speaking about specifically is the idea that people say, which is true, that the devil's on a leash. And that he can only do what God grants him to do. We see that in this passage. In this passage that Jesus speaks of, we see that truth. Now, let me tell you something. If that truth has lulled you into apathy toward spiritual warfare, then you're being deceived by something that's true. You're applying it wrongly. And we'll hear often people who choose not to think about these issues, not to engage in what is actually quite difficult to understand, say in simple, uh, curt terms, well, the, the devil can't do anything that God doesn't want him to do, and the devil's on a short leash. And Okay, yeah, absolutely all that's true. But that's not supposed to inspire apathy. It's supposed to inspire alertness and thankfulness. Look at this word in our text. The word demand. Satan has demanded to have you. The only time this Greek word appears in the Bible is right here. And it means to obtain by asking. 
What I mean to say, what I mean to point out is, is that when Jesus prays for Satan, he isn't praying that the sifting would not occur. The sifting has been granted Satan. Satan has obtained the opportunity to attempt to sift. In, in, in the request, he's obtained the opportunity from the Father to do that. Jesus is praying that Peter's faith remains intact in spite of the sifting. So one of the things I want you to do as Jesus pulls back the curtain and you see this other world, is I just want to crank that knob up to alertness again. I want you to know that you have an enemy who hates you. You have an enemy who actively seeks to destroy you. John Piper said this, The fact that Satan has such power in the world should give a kind of seriousness to our lives which unbelievers don't have. It ought not make us paranoid or fearful, but sober and earnest in our prayers and persistently conscious of needing God's power. When the enemy is supernatural, so must the weapons be. We are aliens and exiles in the world, not merely because our values differ from those who don't know God, this is key, but also because our struggles are different than those who don't know Satan. So let's turn up the alertness and understand that even as the devil demanded the opportunity to sift the disciples' faith, so he will demand the same opportunity for you and I. We will experience these sifting moments. Now, it's helpful to understand what that looks like, what that feels like, what Satan's strategy is, why Jesus refers to it the way he does. So what does Jesus mean by sifting you like wheat? Well, when we start talking about the harvesting process related to wheat, we enter a whole cluster of metaphors that are really having to do with separation and judgment. You could grab your biblical concordance and look up the word thresh or sift or winnow and you would wind up on a lot of verses that have to do with judgment and separation. All of this, this whole idea of harvesting, by the way, is having to do with judgment and separation. When you harvest the wheat, when you cut it off, you're, 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 you're separating it from the ground. When you thresh the wheat, you're separating the heads from the stalks. When you're sifting, you've got the heads and you're, you're sifting the stuff that's connected to the, to the berries away. And when you're winnowing, you're, you're doing the opposite. You're, you're, you're removing the even smaller stuff from the wheat. Every step in the process of harvesting involves separation. You sift wheat to separate the worthless stuff from the worthy stuff. That's Satan's strategy. If I were to wrap up all the devil's strategies into one sentence, it would be this. His goal is to separate man from God and God from man. By the way, if I'm right, and I think I am, then the incarnation had to really tick him off. If his central strategy is to separate God from man and man from God, then the incarnation was the end. It was over that night in Bethlehem when Jesus took on flesh and took on humanity, humanity which he would never discard. 
if Satan's strategy is to separate us from God and separate God from us, then the gospel is terrible news to the devil. So here's a more personal question. Are there forces at work in your life to shake you away from God? Are you, I, I don't have to ask, will you be? I just, I just ask, are you right now being, is there an attempted sifting happening for your soul right now? The devil can use all th- kinds of things to sift you, to shake you. You know, we know he can use poverty, but we forget that he can use wealth to shake you away from God. We, we know that he can use sickness, but we forget that he can use health to shake you away from God. We know, many of us know firsthand that God can use a dysfunctional, broken family to shift us away from God. But you need to know that God can also use a great family to separate you from God. The truth is, is that when I tried to answer the question, well, how does the devil try to separate us from God? The list was too long to fit into a sermon. The better question is, how does the devil try to separate Peter from God? That's, we can probably come closer to answering that question. That's what I want to answer. I'm not going to nail this, by the way. I, I really get tired of people speaking declaratively about why Peter forsook Jesus when, when just moments ago he was ready to go to war with a sword, cutting off a guy's ear. I'm not going to nail this, but I think I can get close to the principal reason why Peter was shaken away from Jesus in those moments. And it comes down to something that I did not intend for us to talk about for five or six weeks in a row, but that we are going to talk about again. And that is the fear of man. If you had to nail down just one reason why Peter ran away from Jesus, if you had to nail down the one strategy the devil used, the one tactic, I guess, the devil used, to shake Peter away from Jesus, I think you'd have to say it's the fear of man. Now let's just review what we mean by the fear of man. I mean, it's a, it's a giant category in and of itself. At the base, we mean this tendency we have to look at human beings for our worth, to either love their affection and their acceptance too much or fear their rejection too much. We're either overly seduced by the possibility of winning their favor or we're overly scared by the possibility of losing their favor. The fear of man shows up in a million different ways. It shows up in bitterness and bearing of grudges. It shows up in being judgmental. It shows up in all sorts of ways. It's this massive thing. And honestly, it's something that probably everybody in this room is dealing with right now. If you wanted to know which idols you would be most likely to worship, you'd just look at the ones that are the best things. Right? You just look at the best stuff on earth, and those are the ones that you're most likely to worship. There are people who, who idolize socks, I suppose, but socks are so low down on the list that there aren't many people who idolize socks. Sex, on the other hand, is way better than socks, and it's high on the list. Lots of people idolize sex. Well, what's the number one thing? What's the best thing God ever created? Human beings. God has deposited more glory and goodness in human beings than anything, more power in human beings than any other thing. And if we're idolaters, as we are, if 
John Calvin is right, and we're a factory of idols. And we're looking around for the raw materials, the things that we're going to idolize, the the creation that we're going to worship and serve over the Creator. We're going to target in on the best stuff. And human beings, believe it or not, are the best this world has to offer. And we are, and also the most powerful thing in this world. So, so we are prone to looking to human beings as our God substitutes. We are prone to looking for their acceptance as a, as a substitute for God's acceptance. And I think if you just logically flow this passage through and ask, why was Peter sifted? How was Peter sifted? You'll come to verse 54 and you'll say, well, I think the most obvious answer is that Peter had a fear of man problem. Let me read verse 54 through 61 to you. So they arrested him, talking about Jesus there, and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it. Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, This man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, You must be one of them. No, man, I am not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, This must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. You will deny me three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Yeah, this this appears to be just old-fashioned fear of man. Now, I am I'm discovering God's will for, for, for me. And, 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 and it's not something that I, I walk into planning, right? And especially with messages. What do you think God's up to? As we've walked through Luke 22 and seen over and over again this issue of the fear of man rising to the top. What do you think God's up to? I'll tell you what I think God's up to. I think God wants you to understand that that's a bigger issue in your life than maybe you realize. I think God wants you to understand that you can't follow Jesus and fear man. That he's calling you to see that it's something you should actively seek to change. And I think he wants you to understand in his care that he's providing you right now with the opportunity to see change in that area of your life. You can actually change. This could have been a problem since you were a little kid. Many of your parents taught you to look to people this way. But as Peter will say later on in his epistle... You can be redeemed through Jesus' blood from the futile ways of your forefathers. This may be something you've dealt with forever. Well, let's hope in the gospel. Let's hope in Jesus. Let's understand where our fear of conflict comes from. Let's understand how our our fear of criticism affects us. Let's understand why we can't release those grudges. Let's understand why it's so difficult to forgive. Let's understand why we don't share the gospel more often, why we don't even necessarily confess openly to people in this church as often as we ought to. Let's understand that for many, many, many years, 
many of us have been walking around with this thing called the fear of man taking up an inordinate section of our heart that isn't, therefore, up to Jesus. It's not His. And let's understand that this morning, as He's been doing for weeks on end, He's saying, I want that. That's mine. I want that piece of your heart too. Give it to me. I I promise I'll do better with it than you've done with it. So I think it's possible. I think it's likely that the devil is sifting some of you. I know he will if he's not now. And I think it's very likely that he'll use the fear of man as the means to do it. So, what now? Well, Jesus says, Satan, Satan, or Simon, Simon, the devil's demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. Here's the cool thing. Yeah, we see the devil being the devil. We see the devil doing what the devil does, but we also see Jesus doing what Jesus does. The devil accuses and Jesus intercedes. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith will not fail. Let's think a little bit about what Jesus is doing here. We see what the devil's doing. Let's think about what Jesus is doing. First thing I want you to understand is, is that Jesus is always active on your behalf. You know, another one of those truisms that can lull us into a false kind of apathy, a, a truism that we can apply falsely, is the once saved, always saved, Right? Once saved, always flows right out. Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. So, 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 I just want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say, "Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat." Well, once saved, always saved. He says, "But I have prayed for you." The Bible absolutely teaches that when we place our faith in Jesus, Jesus grabs our hand and he'll never let go. We are secure in Christ if we are in Christ. What I want you to see right now is that that security is not something passive. That we have an intercessor who actively intercedes for us to keep us where we ought to be. We have an intercessor who actively fights against the enemies of our soul. This quote was super encouraging me, encouraging to me this week. It is encouraging to know that God is infinitely stronger than Satan. And that if we simply trust God to the end, he will give us eternal life. But it is doubly encouraging, doubly hopeful that Jesus Christ and God the Father do not stand back and watch to see if we have the strength to endure in faith. In fact, I am sure... That if the Holy Trinity were not busy day and night strengthening my faith, it would evaporate in a minute. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I am absolutely confident that that is the reality as we pull back the curtain and see the Godhead. My salvation wasn't about a prayer I prayed when I was a teenager. And my salvation, it wasn't even just about one moment in time. The Lord sustains me. He cares for me. He fights for me. He works for me. He intercedes on my behalf day and night. There's that story in the Old Testament where Moses has to lift his hands. And as long as he's lifting his hands, the good guys are winning. But as soon as his hands drop, 
the bad guys start winning. Friends, our Lord neither sleeps nor slumbers, but always intercedes for us. So Jesus is always active on our behalf. I also want you to see that, that he will always win the argument. He's engaged in an argument, but this isn't a tennis match. This isn't a back and forth thing. This is a slam, right? This is, this is his declarative answer to any accusation the devil might bring. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding, present tense, for us. So so the devil and, and Jesus aren't playing tennis. This isn't a volley. This is a slam dunk. Jesus' declarative uh, shout of triumph over us is, is, is what his intercession sounds like. I, I just want you to understand that for a minute. When Jesus is interceding for us, he's not like he's watching a football game in the fourth quarter, really hoping that his team pulls out. He's not saying, God, please, 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 please let them be okay. Now Jesus says, look at me. Look at my righteousness. Look at my perfection. That's his now. That's hers now. End of story. Why does Jesus pray for Peter's faith? Why does he say, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail? Well, a moment ago it was said that Satan's basic strategy is to separate God from man and man from God. And he accomplishes this mostly through accusation. All right, so, so one of the last glimpses we see of the devil in the Bible, he's called the accuser of the brethren. When Satan talks to man, this is key. When Satan talks to man, he slanders God. And when Satan talks to God, he slanders man. He tells us that God isn't good, that God isn't trustworthy. And he tells God that we aren't trustworthy. You see, at the heart of every argument the devil ever makes against man to God is, he's worthless. You can't count on him. He's only following you because of what you've given him. And so on and so forth. And these are very persuasive arguments. We are inclined to believe that God is not good. That is, that is in our hearts. We are born with that inclination to believe that God is not good. We are inclined to believe that God is not trustworthy. We are inclined to trust more in his gifts than in him. And even more persuasive is Satan's argument, the other direction, that we are not trustworthy. God is right to be angry with us. Look how often we've betrayed him. Look how often we've dismissed him. Look how often, even with this issue of the fear of man, does God really deserve to be in competition with a servant girl in a courtyard? Does God really 
deserve to be in competition with the Facebook friends you never see, yet you virtue signal to a couple times a week? No. God is right to be angry with us. He would be right to be angry with us. In fact, these two arguments are airtight apart from the gospel. Satan's argument to us that we should not trust God fits exactly into our flesh's appetite. We don't want to trust God. And so when he tells us that God is not good, everything inside of us wants to believe that's true. It's eager to agree with him. And Satan's argument to God that we are worthless and sinners and worthy of condemnation and worthy of destruction is airtight. So what's the answer to Satan's slandering God to man and slandering man to God? The gospel is the only remedy to Satan's strategy. The good news that God took on humanity, thus making man and God inseparable forever, at least, at the very least, in Jesus Christ, who wound up being the firstborn among many brethren. He died to remove our guilt and died to give us love for God. And how does this all get applied? How does the gospel get applied? Well, Romans says the gospel is the righteousness of God applied by faith for faith. So when, Peter's, when Jesus says, Peter, you're going to be shaken, you're going to be sifted, and I've prayed for your faith. He's saying, you're going to need this thing called faith to look at me and know that I have every answer to every accusation. You're going to need to be able to look to me with faith and believe that I am your righteousness. You're going to need to be able to look to me in faith and know that God is not angry with you anymore. Even though you have sinned greatly. The devil is like a prosecuting attorney. I watched the People versus O.J. Simpson the other day. And Exhibit A and Exhibit B and Exhibit C and all these exhibits are coming out. And I thought, my goodness, if the devil were my prosecuting attorney, we'd never get out of the evidence phase of the trial. I've given him plenty of evidence to make his case. But the devil can point to my character all day long as long as Jesus is pointing to his character on my behalf. And the way I trust in that is a thing called faith. And so Jesus is actively interceding for us so that our faith would be able to respond to these moments of sifting. The truth is, is that no matter how terrible your evidence list is, it will not stain or outweigh the righteousness of Jesus applied to you, for you, by Christ, through faith. If you're struggling with, with just this simple reality that Peter's story, he went out and wept bitterly. What if you've lived in constant betrayal of Jesus for 30 years? The tears dry up and soon your heart does too and you just walk around with this enormous aching conviction and guilt and the guilt becomes so constant that you don't even notice that anymore and you are you are really functionally separated from god you don't enjoy being with him it is hard for you to speak with him it is hard for you to hear from him functionally because of your sin not anything else because of your sin you have a tremendous problem 
being with God? Well, what's the answer? By faith, believe that the perfect one took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and died so that you could be brought to him, to, to God through his righteousness. You know, the gospel is also the answer to the fear of man. Jesus is praying for, for, for Peter's faith, I think, on two fronts. The before and after, right? So, so the, the after is what we've talked about. How do you respond to God as a great sinner? By faith in Jesus as a great sacrifice, right? But as we're talking about undoing this fear of man problem, what we're really talking about is by faith believing that you are so thoroughly and fully accepted by Jesus that you enjoy a meritless, grace-filled love that he offers you that will never fail you, that your identity is 100% secure in Christ if you're Christ's, and that his approval is really all that matters? The antidote to the fear of man on the front end, the way you break free of this, is by faith, applying the gospel daily, frequently. As you catch yourself sucking in your gut to make everybody impressed, and I, don't, I mean that for me literally, but also, but also figuratively, as you catch yourself presenting... Ask the Holy Spirit to help you with that, right? Ask your Holy Spirit to help you know when these moments are coming, when you are trying to perform, trying to show people this, this amazing side of you. In those moments, Jesus will intercede and he will give you faith to see the radical acceptance and love he has bought for you and that is yours forever. The only true acceptance that matters and the worst rejection that you could ever endure being eliminated through the cross of Jesus. So the gospel is the solution not only to the guilt that comes after you've been shaken, but also the solution to keep you in Him. In fact, <laughs> the trick that Satan is really going to be embarrassed at the end of this process, right? Because not only does Christ intercede to keep us in God, so that we won't be shaken away from him. But Christ's intercession, Christ's gospel, actually turns the shaking into sanctification. I said earlier that, that sifting is the process of shaking to separate that which is worthy from that which is worthless. And Satan is asked for permission to do this. And he does it. But guess what happens? Because of Jesus' righteousness holding Peter, Peter does emerge shaken. And some of the sin and pride that Peter struggled with is now off, has now been shaken off. You see, when the devil asks to, sit, to shake uh, a believer, I believe that the answer is yes from the Father because it produces godliness in us when we are in christ and our circumstances shake us what falls off do we fall out of love with jesus do we fall away from jesus no believers in jesus don't do that instead the stuff that was clinging to us so tightly and easily encumbering us the sins 
that we struggle with get shaken off. This shaking winds up being sanctification. The devil deals in shame. The devil deals in accusation. But listen to this beautiful promise in Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The gospel backfires. The whole shame thing backfires on the devil through the gospel. The devil says, you know, he's worthless. And Jesus says, first of all, he's with me. So your opinion of this guy is irrelevant. But secondly, as you were standing here making your case against him, I changed him. And he's actually less sinful than he was 10 minutes ago. As you were shaking him, you were accomplishing my purpose to give him everlasting joy and eternity by being more like me. And how does Jesus conclude this, this verse? Simon, the devil's demanded you that he may sift you like wheat. He's going to do his best to separate you from me. Nothing can ever separate you from me. By faith, apply that. And as you apply that, you're going to experience that this whole fear of man problem that you have is going to go away a little bit. It's going to get a little better. You're going to be a little less sinful in, at the core than you were before. You're going to be a little bit more like me. A little bit of that junk is going to shake off. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to strengthen your brothers. Friends, I don't know how this is supposed to land. I just feel led to say it. This is the first time Peter's even been possibly worthy of leadership. Is after he's wept bitterly, seen his frailty, and been broken and contrite, and seen the Lord preserve him through shaking. This is the right time to commission Peter to strengthen his brothers when he is consciously weak. And I don't know how that's supposed to land in your heart. I just want you to know that that's when leadership makes sense. Is when you feel broken and weak and yet you see Jesus preserving you. And I don't know if that's because maybe the Lord is speaking to you about that, some of you about that. But I want you to know that's the condition. That's the entry point into kingdom leadership. A broken and contrite spirit. Clear understanding of weakness. A sense of frailness. A sense of poverty in spirit. That's, that's a very special moment. And the Lord will often speak into that moment with a new purpose. I, I bring that up because next week we're going to go back to this verse. And I'm going to change two words in this verse. But not in the actual Bible. Instead of Simon, Simon... Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for your faith that you may not fail, that your faith will not fail. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Instead of, instead of uh, Simon, Simon, I want to next week talk about this. Providence, providence. 
Behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. Next week, as we spend time talking about our thankfulness for the Lord's care for this last year and also look forward in vision to what's coming up in the coming year, I want us to see that we are a church that has been sifted, saved, and sent. Whether we're talking about us as a church or about us as individuals, we are never more primed to go and care and serve and minister than we, when we are consciously walking in the mercy extended to us in the midst of Satan's sifting. We're never more ready than that moment. You know, it's all about hitting, striking while the iron's hot. And in Christian terms, the iron is hot when we are very conscious of God's goodness and his mercy and his saving. Very conscious of where we would be without those things. That's when he calls us to go get after it. And so I want you to make sure that you come back next week as we talk about this text again from a church perspective and ask ourselves, what does it mean to have been sifted? What does it mean to have been saved from that? And what does it mean to be sent in this upcoming year? Laid a lot on you this morning, but all of it has to come back to this simple idea. Faith in Jesus will never disappoint you. You will never be put to shame. Lots of things need to be figured out in your life. Lots of details and practical things and tactics. And this time isn't really going to help you with that. Christian community will help you with that. What this is going to help you with is to get recentered on the only hope, the only anchor for your soul, Jesus Christ. We use the Lord's table as I think the Lord's intended for it to be used as that constant reminder of his provision and care for us the way that he has brought his righteousness to bear against our sins, the way that he's brought true forgiveness and genuine love from God and for God through the gospel. So today, as we partake of the Lord's table, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to come and partake of this table, enjoying Christ's perfection applied to your account. Let's pray.